Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Grenzeg, who is an experienced asset manager. So there's a lot we can all learn from him today. So Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. So really excited to kind of dive into your story, your background and all your expertise in asset management. You've been involved in, well, I'll give him a little bit of an intro and Chris will kind of fill in all the gaps here, but uh, he's focused on sourcing, evaluating, acquiring new assets, and has been involved in, you know, the acquisition of over 2,600 units worth over $155 million of assets. So uh, without further ado, Chris, can you kind of fill in the gaps? Uh, tell us how you got into real estate, um, how you kind of developed your expertise and and where you are on your journey right now. For sure. So kind of started, you know, after college, um, I grew up in Long Island, New York, went to Hofstra University, which is there, played division one soccer, uh, graduated 2014 and didn't really have a plan. Luckily enough, had a friend hook me up with a coaching role uh, up in Massachusetts for division two soccer. Did that for a year and quickly realized that, you know, kind of the coaching world wasn't going to be a good long-term fit for me. Uh, so came back to New York, got another coaching job just as a, you know, have a job, but instead of doing other coaching roles, cause as an assistant coach at that level is only part-time, I decided to get my first real job, which was being a cold caller at a stock brokerage company. Um, did that for several months, got licensed. So I had my series seven and 63 was a licensed broker for a number of months, but right around the time I got licensed, I kind of also figured this wasn't really going to be what I wanted to do long-term. So started having conversations about other things to do. Just so happened my mom and my cousin bought a flipping course at that exact time. And they said, Hey, why don't you come into like the weekend immersion seminar thing and see if you like it. If you do, you know, you can join us. And I said, sure. So did the weekend thing. Absolutely loved it. I do literally nothing about real estate before that um, and decided to jump in with them. So it was, you know, the next several months, nights and weekends trying to flip houses on Long Island and completely failed. Uh, we really didn't execute well, um, found it very tough, but there's also a lot of challenges in New York, tons of regulation, uh, very low margin area, but there are people that do it there. So it's definitely possible. We just, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't execute, but we decided to try to do something else and pivot. And we started learning that people would do it out of state, not necessarily in their backyard. And at the time we thought, you know, the margin was a really big barrier for us that we weren't going to be able to figure it out. So we said, let's go someplace where it's not started talking to some other people that were doing it out of state, uh, met a guy that was doing it in Pennsylvania. We wanted to joint venture. He didn't really want to do that, but he needed a loan for a deal. So we said, Hey, if we lend you the money, can we just pick your brain? He said, sure. So we lent some money on that. Um, and then just as we were talking, got introduced to his cousin, who is John Cohn, who's one of the owners at Toro, um, where I was working until very recently and met him and just kind of started talking. And he was moving over into the multifamily side. 
we had just started learning about that and we got really excited about that because we thought it was a little bit more interesting. It felt like a little bit of a less risky flip because you can come in, renovate a property, but have cash flow while you're doing it. And then you can either sell it or you can hold it longer term. There's multiple exit strategies. You weren't as locked into just selling it like a flip, as well as there's some tax benefits, which was really beneficial for my mom and my cousin who were earning a lot more money than I was at the time. So we decided to partner on a couple smaller deals that John was doing. Um, we invested in an eight unit up in Northern Kentucky, partnered on a 17 unit in the same area. And then we partnered on an 82 unit down in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and around the same time we were doing that 17 unit, I was fed up with my job as a stockbroker, ready to leave. And John and his partner, Don, had another company called Tor Real Estate Partners. They had just started about six months prior and that was focused on much larger multifamily assets. So 100 to 500 unit properties, five to 50 million. Um, you know, the stuff that we had been doing was a few hundred thousand, a couple million at most. And they were starting to scale. You know, I was just talking to John one day saying I wanted to leave. And he said, why don't you come work for us at Toro? You know, we need some help and, you know, you can work on some bigger projects. And I kind of said, sure. Um, we agreed to do like a short trial went well, they kind of coached me up, uh, and then eventually evolved into a role where I was running the Florida region of our portfolio. Um, the bio is a little dated, we actually ended up buying uh, roughly 4000 units about $285 million worth of properties. Uh, 23, we sold, uh, I think nine. Um, so currently Toro owns about 14 properties about 2700 units. Uh, and then about a month ago or so. Um, you know, so that was August, 2016. It's been about four and a half years. Um, I actually decided to leave Toro. I'm in the process of leaving. Um, I moved down to Florida and I'm starting my own, uh, owner and property management company, uh, for small to mid-sized multifamily deals. Yeah, and that's a cool journey kind of along the way. And I, I love hearing about yeah, different people, how they kind of got started on into real estate and, and I mean, you hear the cliche, well, I read this book, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or whatever, mm -hmm. or something like that. And I mean, you've got a different route where it's kind of like you got introduced by your mom and then, you know, things kind of just organically happened and kind of fell into place where you kind of stumbled your way into multifamily, which is kind of cool to end up in, in such a great place like this. So um, talk about that kind of like the learning curve on kind of switching that mindset from single family, fix and flip into multifamily and some of the skills that you really needed to pick up to be an effective asset manager? Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that I remember was you know, coming from the fix and flip single family world, everyone takes something that looks like total crap to, you know, really nice, you know, quartz, stainless steel, tile floors. Uh, and we were focused on, you know, really C-class multifamily, which you never do that stuff in renovation. So where we would be spending anywhere from, you know, thirty to eighty thousand dollars on a house in the single family world, you might be spending, you know, three thousand to fifteen thousand for these apartments to renovate them. And for us, it was like, whoa, like this isn't nice enough. Like this, we're not doing a good job. And you know, we really had to learn that, like, hey, you know, you can't over improve a property. Like, you know, you can still make it nice, clean, safe. Uh, you know, and that's what is really plays well kind of in that demographic and then in that area. So that was definitely one of the bigger challenges. Um, also understanding how commercial real estate works with financing, cap rates, uh, how rents work, et cetera, like that. Um, you know, it's definitely different than flipping, which is, you know, you're looking at 
ARV and renovation costs and holding costs. You know, these are cash flowing deals that, you know, you look at both what it can cash flow over the years and then what you can potentially make when you sell. Um, you can also look at, you know, refinancing. So there were a couple of things, um, but it's definitely a, a different business model. And, you know, John and Don were incredibly helpful, um, you know, as I kind of got started and, you know, definitely helped me learn very quickly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's that perception of, especially in like the fix and flip world where a lot of people have been exposed to it just kind of by the, these programs that they've kind of put out there or TV shows where it's like, oh, that seems so cool. I can go do that. You know, kind mm -hmm. of a, say a husband and wife are kind of watching TV late at night and they're like, well, why don't we do that? And then that's kind of where you yeah. get that side hustle type mentality. Um, and I think there's a different mindset for multifamily, although it might be approaching this where people are kind of getting that idea themselves where they can go in and just jump into multifamily and, and do it no problem. But I mean, the biggest thing there is that multifamily, it is a business. It's got to be treated like a business and you can't just go and expect to do it half-hearted and kind of like, oh, I'm going to put in a, an hour or two here and there and just kind of, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be rich. Like this person told me on this, on this, uh, program or something like that. You've really got to be detailed in, in how you manage the assets and treat them. You're literally buying a business. So that's the biggest thing. So uh, yeah, when you're going to go out and look at a potential acquisition that you're going to be potentially buying, what are some of the things that you kind of go through when you're developing that business plan for deciding what you're going to do on the property to improve it? For sure. So just to touch on what you were saying, I think, you know, any real estate takes a breath, you know, it's not just easy to get into where I think so many people go into flipping kind of naturally, or maybe have a little bit of an easier time is so many people own homes and so many people do work to homes. And so many people talk about their homes with family and relatives. So people just have a little bit of a better understanding and also just get it a little bit easier, right? It's very easy to say, Oh, I buy something for X, I improve it for Y and I can sell it for Z and make the difference multifamily is a little bit different to understand. And I still talk to after four or five years of doing it, friends, family members, acquaintances that I know, and they have a very tough time understanding exactly what it is that I do to a certain degree and how it works. Everybody understands, oh, you get an apartment, you renovate it and you rent it for more. They don't necessarily understand the mechanics behind it. And I try to explain it in that, you know, it's very similar to just buying a home that you rent out and, you know, kind of, you know, you make money on what you put into it, but it's still not the easiest concept for somebody to take a single family home and extrapolate it over a hundred units, 200 units, 10 units for some reason, or maybe I'm just really bad at explaining it. I don't know. Um, I don't think so, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a little bit of a different world and, you know, not as organic for a lot of people. Um, as far as looking at deals, you know, we are, or were, or still are, you know, look at value add and opportunistic type deals. So basically what that means is there's some way to come in, buy the property, make some improvements, either by spending money to improve it, uh, increasing operating efficiencies, like decreasing expenses, um, which will then in turn increase the value, which will then you know make your returns higher, not only on a sale or profit or refinance, but also your income coming in every month, every year will go up, which increases your cash flow from when you buy it.
Um, so that's typically what we're looking for. And, you know, there's varying ways to do it. You know, they can be as distressed as buying something that's existing, but vacant and needs a ton of work. So there's no cash flow day one, but a lot in years two, three, four, five. Um, or it could be very simple as, you know, when a unit becomes vacant, you know, we're just putting in new flooring and appliances and, you know, raising rent five, 10%. Right. So, I mean, every market is going to behave a little bit differently and kind of is going to kind of determine what type of business plan is going to actually be able to be implemented, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you go into a certain market and say, I'm going to juice the rents by this much by just swapping out flooring and, and putting in new cabinets or different things like that, like certain things just won't happen because you got to know who the tenant profile is, what the market like is, is, is like, um, maybe there's rental restrictions in place. So can you talk about that process of kind of like really diving into the market and understanding the research that goes behind it to know what type of business plan to implement in, in certain markets? Yeah. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. You need to understand what's going on in the market and also in the submarket, which you can also think as the neighborhood, right? Just think about where you live, whether it's some places do it by towns or cities, some places just do it by names of neighborhoods or zip codes, however you want to look at it, you know, a couple blocks, just think about what different neighborhoods are like, and you would never do a certain style in another area, whether it's the level of renovation, the look of it, you know, the types of appliances and flooring you would put in, because there's just not the demand for it, you know, certain areas just aren't as nice aren't attracting, you know, the same type of person. And they may not be looking for the same thing or may not be able to afford the same thing. So like I said, a lot of the stuff that we look at is in the C and B space, which is kind of your blue collar workforce housing to, you know, your white collar, you know, W2 employee, you know, they're typically not making, you know, 70, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a year. So you are capped on what you can rent these things out for. What we typically like to do is we're never really the trailblazers in an area. So we're not coming in and being the first to push rents from a thousand to fourteen hundred. There's typically almost always other properties that are renting for higher than what the property we're looking at is. And we can emulate what they're doing to a certain degree where we have a certain amount of confidence that we can replicate that and get rents that are very similar, maybe slightly less, slightly more, depending upon exact location, quality of the property we're buying, a bunch of different factors. But that's typically what we're looking for. We're looking at other properties in the area that are very similar, that are doing similar types of renovations and achieving certain things that we can emulate and build upon. Yeah. And can you actually clarify a little bit on, I mean, sometimes people get confused or they mix up the two it's like oh property management versus asset management mm -hmm. i mean for those of us that are in the industry and kind of get it they're like it, it makes sense but for somebody that's like on the outside kind of like what you're talking about before where you're like you know your friends or family still quite don't yeah understand fully what it is what do you do right like so kind of differentiate the two and how how they work hand in hand of being an asset manager working with a property manager yeah, so you can kind of think about it as like the property management is the the day-to-day -day stuff that's actually happening on the property. And the asset management is kind of the oversight and the big picture stuff. It's a little bit hard to imagine when you think about a single family home or a 10 unit because they overlap so much more than when you start getting into 
100 units, 200 units, 300 units, because these properties support full-time staff that, you know, they have leasing agents, they have maintenance staff, um, they might have house cleaners. Um, there's so many things, you might have landscaping that can be in-house and they're going to handle the day-to-day, you know, like I'm not the one talking, or I wasn't the one as an asset manager talking to the tenants. I wasn't the one collecting rent. I wasn't the one doing the accounting and inputting different expenses and income. But what I was doing was looking at the property, looking at the areas, making sure the financials are where they need to be. How does it compare to our budget? Looking at what other properties are doing and just continuing to analyze the plan that we put in place when we bought it and deciding, do we need to make a change? Is it going how we thought? What are those problems that are happening and coordinating with the property management to implement those things? So we're really, you can almost think about it as like a CEO and a COO where the CEO is looking at how the business is going and looking at the market and how do we stack up and what are things that we need to do and talking with the COO and actually implementing those things, getting their opinion on how things are happening day to day and things you need to change. And they're really more in the weeds. So you can almost think about it as those two roles as well. Yeah, no, that's actually a perfect explanation on the the CEO type, you know, high level oversight. And actually, Mm -hmm. while you were explaining that, I was kind of thinking of that myself. I'm like, really operates like a CEO. And I'd never thought of that um, myself about that. Like it, it really is kind of just looking at it having that high level oversight, I mean, no CEO in the right mind is going to be going, well, depending on the size of the business, but yeah. really going to be inputting every single invoice, kind of tracking mm-hmm. receipts and doing all that. Like that's where you have different uh, staff level at each level, kind of like, Hey, you're, you're the accounts payable person. You're the accounts receivable. Like you have all these different people in place. And really when at the end of the day, when they're going to go over their quarterly results or different things like that, they're getting reports kind of filtering up through the CFO or different things like that. And that's where that asset manager sits on the top, kind of having that full view of what's going on. Hey, are we going in the right direction? Are we going to hit our targets and all those different things? So um, it's really um, yeah, good explanation on kind of how you laid the groundwork on how asset management fits into that process. So, I mean, but a, a key thing that comes into the process is having good property management. So how do you go out as an asset manager and make sure that you're working with quality property managers? How do you kind of go and vet them? Yes. So the biggest one is obviously referrals, you know, having a network of other owners and other businesses that are investing in real estate and getting referrals is huge, but you can also leverage other people. So find, you know, use all the people that work in that area um, not against each other, but for each other, right? There's, there's insurance people that work in areas. There's, uh, commercial brokers, there's mortgage brokers, there's real estate agents, there's property managers. There's a lot of, you know, there's different contractors and vendors, you know, the good people in those areas will know about each other and will usually work together because if you have, you know, the best manager in an area in theory, they're not going to work with a shitty contractor. So they're going to weed them out over time. And, you know, the better ones are going to float to the top. So maybe, you know, you may not get recommended the best contractor, or you may not get recommended the best manager, but you'll get, you know, several names that are, you know, at the top, and you'll see the same ones from different people kind of float their way to the top, and you can kind of pull it out that way. So the biggest one for me is getting in touch with other people in that area, owners, brokers, insurance, property managers, contractors, 
ask them all for referrals for all the other ones. And you'll probably get a bunch of names that continue to pop up and you can then, you know, kind of have those conversations with them and then, you know, make your own choice. Yeah. And then obviously you're going to be getting reports and stuff and, and reviewing that and making sure that the property managers is meeting, let's call them your KPIs on what you lay out for them to make sure that they're hitting the goals on, on going in the right direction. So yeah, what are some of those key KPIs that you as an asset manager would kind of be looking for? Um, I know there's going to be a handful of them, but what are some mm-hmm. of the ones that stand out for you when you, when you get a report from a property manager? Yeah. Collections is probably the biggest one, right? If you've got 90 out of a hundred units rented, how many of those 90 have paid up to a certain date? Obviously you would love to be hundred percent collected on the first of every month, but that's not realistic. So you want to know how it's going. You want to know what the history of that property is. So you can see, are we ahead of what it typically is behind of what it typically is? If it's, you know, when you buy it, if it's worse than you think the market is, you know, can you work on training those people to pay earlier in the month and kind of get your collections earlier? just allows you to pay bills sooner. It allows you to feel more comfortable. Um, the more you collect earlier, the less likely you, you are to have to evict people. Uh, so collections is one of the biggest one. Occupancy is obviously a big one. How many units are rented at a given time out of the total? Um, you know, the more units, you know, the less likely it's going to swing. If you have one unit, obviously you go zero to a hundred overnight, you got four, you can go, you know, up and down pretty quick. So that's something we look at. Uh, we have a budget for expenses. So we want to know where we're at against that budget. Are we under, are we over? Obviously earlier in the month, it's harder to tell, but as you get later in the month, you know, you want to know then if you're likely to go over instead of when you get the, you know, true accounting for that month, which is oftentimes 15 days after the month ends, it's tough to make a change 15 days after the month ends. You're already halfway through the next month. So now instead of having, you know, you catch it on the 20th day of the current month, you catch it on day 45, you're already 15 days into the second month, you know, you've just lost about 25 days. So those are things we look at. Um, What else? Trying to think. Um, We look at leasing, you know, so how many pieces of traffic have we gotten in? You know, how many new applications, how many of those applications were accepted and denied? How many are moving in this month? Um, We want to look at our lease renewals. How many leases are expiring this month? How many have renewed? How many are giving notice to actually leave? So that way we know for, you know, this month or next month, how many new units we're going to have to either turn and get ready to rent or renovate to get ready to rent. Um, we also look at work orders, right? So a work order is anytime a tenant puts in a request for a maintenance thing, right? An AC isn't working, fridge isn't working. You know, how many requests are we getting? Um, because if you take care of the small things early on, you know, typically they don't lead to big problems. That's when you ignore those things, they lead to bigger problems in the future. So we want to make sure we're addressing them quickly and efficiently, as well as addressing them quicker leads to better tenant satisfaction, which leads to less turnover, which leads to less spend, which leads to less days vacant, which leads to more money to the bottom line. Um, so those are some of the biggest ones we look at. Right. And obviously you're going to have, like you said, your budget in place. Well, say there's going to be circumstances where, Hey, your expenses aren't meet, are over your budget or your income is below what you budgeted. So what are some of the things you can do as an asset manager to really hold that property manager accountable and kind of course, correct or adjust to make sure you get back on track. 
Mm -hmm. So I want to throw a big caveat out there first is that a budget at the end of the day is a guess. You're never going to know what it's going to be exactly. So same thing with projecting future rents and future vacancy. All these things are guidelines. And at the end of the day, what you put on paper for what you think it's going to perform in the first year is going to be wrong. What you want to do is get as close as possible or be better than what you put on paper. So if you're like, oh, we projected we're only going to spend $1,000 a month on repairs and maintenance. If it's 1100 it's not the end of the world. If you're 1500 2000 then that's something you want to look at. And then you want to understand it because it's very possible that everybody just didn't catch something, right? Maybe the ACs were all older than you thought and you needed to replace a few more than you expected. Or maybe, you know, when you took over, there were a lot of work orders that were being ignored by the previous owner and they, you know, they stockpiled up very quickly. So just understand that a budget is great, but it's not a fixed thing. You just want to understand why things are off on your budget. So if it's low, why is it low? If it's high, why is it high? Um, if there are things that you think are being done improperly, you know, then you just kind of have that, have that discussion and fix it. Um, and you know, some things are, are kind of just avoidable. So really it's just getting a really good understanding of why certain things are off and, you know, just looking at the things that are good, you know, you don't have to spend as much time on. Right. Now, do you have a specific deal you kind of want to share on Hey, that you may have, you came in, you bought it, implemented the business plan, kind of share, you know, maybe what was the unit count? What were some of the renovations or things that were done? And yeah, just kind of share some of the high level details on a, a specific project that you went through and, and acted as the asset manager on. Sure. So I can do uh, the first deal we bought in Jacksonville was that 82 unit. Um, we actually sold that earlier this year. Uh, we owned it for about two and a half years. Um, it was 82 units. Um, it was actually our manager in Florida was already managing it for the person trying to sell it. Um, so we felt very confident buying it because we knew, you know, sometimes owners will try to hide problems with the property so that they can sell it for more than if you knew about the problem. So we felt very confident that that wasn't going to happen because she's going to be managing it for us afterwards. She doesn't want to get fired. So obviously if there was a problem, she was going to tell us about it. So we felt there was no big problems coming into it. Um, our plan coming in into it was there were a couple units that were like partial renovations. So just some flooring, some paint, some new appliances, nothing crazy. And we were going to continue that business plan and just push rents a moderate amount. Um, but what actually happened after about six or eight months was some properties in that area started doing nicer renovations where they were actually re also replacing countertops, cabinets, uh, interior doors, light fixtures, et cetera, and really increasing rent quite substantially, anywhere from 15 to 25%, depending upon floor plans, who you compare it to, et cetera. Um, and what we did was at that time, we kind of looked at it and ran a scenario where we took the same budget, but did less units at a higher cost and how that would stack up to our budget. And we actually changed our entire capital budget for interior renovations to this new plan because we felt it would work out way better in the long run. And we would actually sell it for more because there was a proven value add plan that, you know, I think we ended up doing like 30 of the 82 units 
and the next buyer was able to come in and finish the rest of that plan on the rest of the units and, you know, have some meat left on the bones instead of us renovating all the units and, you know, they may or may not upgrade them again. So, um, you know, that was one of the things that we looked at and it's actually a really good example of, you know, why we look at deals continually and why we look over the property manager because they're not going to be concerned as much about what other properties are doing. And they're not really going to be the one to make that call. They might suggest it or talk about it and give their thoughts, but that's kind of at the end of the day, you know, what we're there to do. Um, so we did that. We did some other minor exterior things. You know, we cleaned it up, um, you know, just made it look a little bit nicer, just touched up some things, did some landscaping, some new signage, um, some new curbs, you know, some little things that really just made it look cleaner, um, which go a long way. And then just kind of, you know, after we were done, you know, just operated the property until, you know, eventually we decided to sell. Yeah. And I think, I mean, going back to our prior discussion on like the, the single family fix and flip, that type of thing to going into the multifamily side of thing. I think a lot of people, when you're giving this example on, on this property and how you kind of increase rents, a, lot, a thing that a lot of people forget and they coming into the multifamily side of things, they don't really understand is the cap rate side of things where you can actually just by increasing the income or the net operating income, that adds a whole lot of value, right? When you're selling it on a cap rate basis. I mean, a lot of people know they've heard the word cap rate. They're like, oh, what, what's the cap rate? Well, if it doesn't really mean anything to you, if it's like, oh, five, six or 10, it doesn't really matter. It's just, somebody's just kind of saying it's like, that's kind of the term that I should be using. And I'm going to ask what that number is because that's about all I know. But um, I think it's important concept for people to really, really understand if they're in the multifamily space and looking at it, because I mean, if you go and uh, say, for example, on a five cap, um, you're, you can then multiply your earnings for every dollar you earn, you're going to add $20 in value. So that's kind of that, that main difference. It's not just on a, a single family where you go and renovate it and then you got to go and sell it for maybe what similar property is selling for down the street you're going to really on the multifamily side look to increase income or decrease expenses so you can raise that noi and then really add the value um you know on exit when you sell that property on a cap rate basis so important concept for people to understand and and really to make that transition in their mindset when they're looking at single family and then jumping into the, the multifamily side of things so um, and, and, and on that example, you said you, you left some meat on the bones for the, for the next buyer. Is that something you typically do on all your properties or are you kind of like in some cases renovating all the units and kind of going mm -hmm. that way? So this all, it all ties together and cap rate is definitely an important thing to learn and to understand, but I do think a cap rate is overhyped because, there's so many ways to play with what the cap rate is, right? Especially when people are selling and buying. I promise you, if you've been in this long enough, people when people when a deal gets sold, there's typically three parties that will like put out like a press release or a notice and let people know that happened. The buyer, the seller, and the broker. And almost every time, every single person reports a different cap rate. And the reason for that is because a lot of times when a deal sells, your taxes are going to increase. So do you use the old taxes or the new taxes? Then a lot of times when people are in the process of doing value add, the income is going up every month. So what that means is if you have the 12 months, your, your last month, your 12th month from today versus your most recent month is probably going to be, you know, your 12th month is going to be lower than today. So what people will do is they'll tell you the most recent months 
and multiply it. You know, if it was the, just the one, then multiply it by 12. If it was the most recent three, then multiply it by four to kind of show the trend. So it's like a T3, a T1. It's called the trailing, you know, one month, a trailing three months. You know, it's kind of how they do it. So some people do, you know, a T3 cap rate, which makes the deal look better or does it higher. Um, you know, some people will do it with, they'll add in market expenses. You know, so there's so many different ways to like change up the cap rate. I think it gets a little hyped up too much. And where it actually really becomes interesting is now what you're talking about is the reason value add deals will sell for lower cap rates is because if I had a property that had no ability to add value, there's going to be a certain market cap rate, right? Like I want to make 6%. And this is where this is where people get it twisted because a cap rate is just what you would make on the property if you bought it all cash. So that means if you had a 10 cap and it made you $100,000 a year, the property is worth a million. So if you bought it for a million, you make $100,000 a year, you'd make 10%. Where people now get confused is if it's value add, what they're saying is, is let's say, again, it's a 10 cap, which you can't find today, but just say, let's say it was a 10 cap. You, you would be willing to buy that deal for an eight if you could increase it to 12% after a couple of years. Like, let's say it would take you three years to get to 12%. Just ask yourself, would you be okay to make 8% the first year, 10% the second year, and make 12% for years three, four, five, six, seven, eight? I think most people would probably say yes. But now, if you said, okay, well, I bought it for an eight. If I increase the rents 100 at an eight cap, I'm adding value. Well, that's not true because if you fixed everything up and the market's a 10, you're not going to sell it for an eight cap anymore. You're going to sell it for a 10. So I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, but where I'm going with this is, you know, you really have to understand how cap rates function and how it sells and compared to certain types of properties because a deal where I can, you know, think about it this way, a vacant deal, we've bought a couple of them those are worth something, but they're not bringing in, in any income. They're actually losing people money through taxes, insurance, utilities, if there's any for like exterior lighting, but it's worth something. How do you calculate a cap rate on that? It's a negative cap rate. It makes no sense, right? But if you can fix it up and sell it, it is worth something. It's the same concept just to a certain degree, right? You would be willing to pay a lower cap rate if you could increase the rent 500 bucks than if you could only increase it a hundred bucks. So, you know, it's that kind of relationship of what you can do with it in the future and what cap rates are that you just kind of got to analyze it a little bit. And that's kind of why we always decided at Toro to leave meat on the bones because so many deals that are in the C-class space, almost all of them are value add. So it's much easier to predict or kind of predict what the cap rate might be in the future because you've got so many types of comps out there. If you had a fully stabilized renovated property, it'd be a little bit tougher to kind of predict exactly what it would sell for because nothing sells for a stabilized market cap rate in the C-class space. You really only get that in the, you know, the A space for brand new construction. So that's kind of why we always did it. We also felt there was a large buyer pool. Um, but for me personally, like as I've gone off on my own, the deal we just bought, I'm renovating every unit in the first year, and then we're going to refinance and hold for, you know, 10, 15 years, most likely. Um, so it's just a little bit of a different strategy. Yeah. And you're totally right on the cap rate side of things where it's not just that simple. And it gives one simple explanation, then you've got it understood. There's so many ways you can look at it. And 
I mean, it doesn't really give an accurate representation of value because you can't just have one number that every single person across the board is, like you said, it's going to make sense to a different person, the buyer, their seller, and the broker. And there's always going to be that play on on who's right. And, and But I mean, it, it, you have to really understand it at a fundamental level to kind of really use it. Uh, but it, it mm-hmm. does give a little bit of a baseline on kind of what to ex- expect on an annualized return. So it is kind of like that first question that most people ask to kind of get an understanding like, oh, this is the like, you know, return if I bought it all cash. But I mean, it shouldn't be kind of the end all be all of like understanding, oh, is this a good deal or not? Like it's it's basically a benchmark. Somebody would say, hey, is, you know, what's it selling at? Five, six cap, seven cap? Okay, let me take a deeper mm-hmm. look at it and kind of then really look what's going on behind the scenes, you know, by analyzing the property. And, you know, like you said, it's going to vary by if it's a, a value add play where it's not producing income, it's kind of hard to derive a cap rate from that. But um, I mean, like you said, you can go into this deep discussion into the weeds on it, but it, it's just a concept for people to understand and kind of like, yeah, use some thinking behind it to kind of look, um, but shift their mindset from going from single family where it's, that doesn't really exist in that space, the cap rate. Um, but yeah, like you said, there's there's so much you can kind of discuss behind that. Yeah, well, I was actually just a really tangible example before we move on that people can think about. If you had the exact same deal, both selling at let's say a five cap, but one has a brand new roof that's gonna last you 30 years and one has a roof that's at 30 years old with leaks, are you gonna pay a five cap for both deals? Well, no, of course not, because the one with the you're gonna have to replace that roof, if not today, in the next year or two, or spend a ton of money on repairs. It's never gonna make you the same amount as that deal with the brand new roof. So those are like the things you gotta look at is like what, especially with older properties, right? If it was just built, it's it's fine. And that's why you kind of have those stable cap rates, right? It's the only thing you might have is organic rent growth, or sometimes they offer concessions or discounted rent when they're leasing the property up after it was just built. So sometimes you have value add class A stuff, but even then, you know, it's kind of a, a broker's term. Um, you know, but those are the types of things you have to look at. How much capital does it need? How old are the roofs? How much are you going to have to spend on it? So it's like when people say like, oh, deals sell for five caps in the submarket, it's a good barometer, but you have to look at it because some, you know, some may have had all that stuff replaced, or some may be in really great shape. Some may have leaking pipes underneath the slab that you're not really going to be able to fix that well without ripping a bunch of stuff up. So your water bill is just higher. Like those are things you have to look at and consider as you look at property. So it's really tough to just take a blended approach, especially in like markets, submarkets, asset types, et cetera. Yeah, no, that's actually a perfect explanation of saying it's a barometer, right? And that's kind of a good word to kind of summarize all these things we've been chatting about. Like, how can you go out and say this one number, this is the universal metric on which we can compare properties. Like, sure, they did a good job of kind of throwing it in there to kind of compare different asset classes across real estate. But I mean, really, as something as complex as real estate from the location, the asset type, the age, all those different components, you can't just rely on one metric to give you you know, the end all be all return on if this is a good deal or not. That's where you use it as a barometer and then, Hey, I'm going to take a deeper look on, on what's actually going on behind the scenes. So mm-hmm. I actually want to start wrapping it up here and take it to the final four questions. So starting off here, what is your favorite real estate or business book? <laughs> uh, so I'm not the biggest reader in the world. Um, couple books that I read that I like, there's a really good book called quitting like a millionaire, which is very specific 
if you want to like retire at 30 and like kind of live on minimal money. Um, but it has some really good thoughts and ideas and ways to do things in there. So you can extrapolate stuff, even if you're not, you know, you don't want to do exactly what they do. Um, what else do I like? Um, Joe Fairless's book, uh, the best ever syndication book is really good. Um, I've probably read about 50, 60% of it, but, and skimmed through the rest, but it's really just a really good breakdown of what syndication is. It's a pretty good guideline. It's not the cheapest book in the world. Last I checked, I think it was like 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something like that. But if you're like dead set on syndication, um, or even multifamily, you know, it's a pretty good comprehensive guide in a book form. Um, those are kind of the only two off the top of my head. I really don't read a lot. Yeah, no, that is a good kind of a comprehensive guide. I agree with that. It kind of, kind of front to back, like obviously you can't go into depth on everything, but he did a kind of good job of kind of laying out the framework or the foundation on, Hey, what makes, what makes a multifamily syndication? How do you get into it? What are the things you look at? And, and it was pretty comprehensive. So I, I enjoyed the book as well. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? The first year, it's going to take a little bit longer than you think to get the ball rolling, but like your first few years will be slower than you think. But then your first, you know, your years after that, whether it's three years or five years, but your years after that will grow quicker than you think. Like the best example I can think of is um, Michael Zuber has a really good platform called One Rental at a Time. And his whole premise is that basically that, you know, his first seven deals took seven years, but then his next like 40 took two years because that first deal you buy, let's say you invest 30 grand, 20 grand, you know, you're not going to turn 20 into 40 overnight. You might make a hundred bucks a month, 200 bucks a month. That's not changing anybody's life. Right. But what it does is if you continue to invest that 20,000 per year, you know, you get a hundred, you know, a thousand, two thousand the first year, then you get two thousand, four thousand the next year, then you get four thousand, eight, you know, like it just stacks on top of each other every year that you add a new one. And then all along the way, hopefully the values of those properties grow, your equity grows. And then when you finally cash in on that through a sale or a refinance, now you have a lot more capital to play with as well as you're making a lot more cash flow every year. And hopefully too, your income and salary is going up along the way as well. So all those things kind of stack on top of each other and it just starts to snowball quicker and quicker. So it'll start slower than you think, but it'll also snowball quicker. Than yeah, you no, think. that's actually a good good phrase there, snowball. Like that was actually the one I was gonna use to summarize it all. It's kind of like you get this little snowball, build it at the top of the hill, start it rolling. It's gonna pick up pace, speed and size, right? As, as you gain momentum, as you start having more equity in your properties to leverage and refi and and you can exit a property and then redeploy it. So there's a lot of just moving parts and which help you grow momentum there. So next one here, what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? I think breaking down larger goals into small measurable goals. Um, you know, so having, you know, end goals and creating to-do lists. Like for me, Earlier this year, my goal was to buy a 10 to 50 unit property in Jacksonville, Florida. And what I did was I broke it down into small steps like, okay, find 10 names of brokers or agents that sell these types of properties, then call them. Then it was underwrite so many. So it was breaking down those goals till eventually I was offering, then putting under contract and then, you know, eventually closing on. So I think those are, you know, 
some of the biggest things that really help. I mean, you can, you, you can take it for anything, right? It doesn't have to just be real estate. Um, but for me, that's helped me be the most successful because sometimes these big goals feel very overwhelming, but if you can break it down to, okay, research and find 10 people, well, that's not that hard. Anybody can do that. Then it's, you know, next week, make 10 calls, you know, anybody can really do that. So that's been hugely helpful. Yeah. It's just taking small steps every single day or consistently that's going to add up over time and not just taking mm-hmm. this huge jump on he once a month, I'm going to do something big. It, it really is going to be that same type of stacking little habits over time. So next mm-hmm. one here is what do you like to do for fun? Um, I enjoy playing soccer still. Um, it's been tough, obviously with COVID not really being able to do that. Hopefully that'll open up soon. Um, I like going for the gym, um, recently took up hiking this year, which was pretty fun. Um, I actually went on an eight day trip with my cousin through upstate New York. Um, I think we hiked like 75 miles in eight days. So that was pretty fun. Um, you just hang out with friends, family, you know, nothing really too crazy. Awesome. So last thing here, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you or potentially get in touch? Yeah. Um, so easiest way is just to find me on social media. Um, two biggest ones are Instagram or LinkedIn. You just search Chris Grenzig, you'll find it. Um, we also have a podcast too, if anybody wants to check it out, it's called the real estate investing experience. You can find it on every single platform, including YouTube, uh, or you can go to the reiexp.com. Perfect. So yeah, I encourage everyone to kind of check those out. I really enjoy Chris's show. Uh, great podcast. Um, yeah, I've, that's kind of what led me to reach out to Chris and have him on the show here, kind of been consuming his, his podcast and you know, it's, yeah, he's got putting out great stuff out there. So definitely encourage listeners to go check it out. So, uh, yeah, Chris, it was great having you on the show. Really appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, yeah, sharing your expertise about asset management. I really enjoyed the conversation today. So thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.